Since it first aired November 29th, 2000, I've shown the opening minutes of Galileo, West Wing's ninth episode of its second season, to anyone who wanted tips on writing a text for public speaking. This four minutes and 30 seconds has had the largest impact on how I speak publicly and how I write for the stage. For comedy, for work presentations, for videos, for podcasts, this is the clip that anchors me, that I can turn to when I'm blocked, and the sentiment I try to keep front of mind when I set to filling a blank page. The scene is full of Aaron Sorkin's standard dialogue, full of urgency and importance and elevated cadence. The president is being prepped for a live broadcast of the arrival of Galileo 5 to the planet Mars. This scene in particular holds its place in my psyche because its back half consists of a public affairs speechwriter from NASA not allowing the president's speechwriter to make changes to the script. For those who aren't aware, writing for public speaking is special. Most less experienced writers, which is most people, go into the writing of a speech thinking, after listening, my audience will have this information. It's why most TED Talks and YouTube videos and every presentation at work starts with some version of, today I'd like to talk to you about this thing that is very important and that you should all know. This is the thing, and by the end of my presentation, you should know more about the thing. That's every intro. What Galileo 5 explains, what it taught me, and what I believe is more important, is that when writing for an audience, the sentiment should instead be, after listening, my audience will feel differently. Whether it be feeling energized, upset, passionate, whatever, the point is to affect someone. And that's what happens in this scene. We see the direct comparison. We see the standard run-of-the-mill speech with all of the relevant info, but it's uninteresting. It's just a list. And then we see the same information presented in a way that speaks to the breadth and beauty and importance of the event. It's the same info. But now I, as the audience, care. And the most beautiful part of the whole scene is that everyone involved is intelligent. Off the charts smart. And they all know they're smart, but they disagree. And that makes for some incredibly fun interactions. You see, the first speechwriter works for NASA. The second speechwriter works for the White House. They're not idiots, but they don't see eye to eye. And that's what made it fun to watch. And as much as I learned about speechwriting from this scene, it also reminded me what I love about an Aaron Sorkin script. This scene is just one of thousands of scenes from Aaron Sorkin projects, TV shows, movies that lives in my brain rent-free. The president in West Wing condemning God in Latin for the death of a dear friend. Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill hammering home the importance of getting on base in Moneyball. Jack Nicholson telling Tom Cruise that he can't handle the truth. A thousand more. Because when it comes to dialogue and screenwriting, there's one thing that makes my knees weak, that reaches into my mind, my soul, and Aaron Sorkin is one of the very best at it. If you want to knock me on my ass and make me fall in love with your script, make sure you treat all of your characters as intelligent. They can disagree, but they have to be smart. Because there's nothing better than watching smart people arguing. So let's talk about that. But first, disclaimer time! This is not a review show! I am nerd incorrect. I'm passionate, opinionated, highly subjective, and so many, 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 many times incorrect. I have to repeat, this is not a review show. 
I'm not going to objectively weigh any piece of art on any merits. What I will do is explore the things that make entertainment beautiful and explore the art created for us to consume while we live our lives. Thank you for joining me while I explore the adventures we have from inside the house. I'm uncool, I'm the urk on everyone's bill. Murray, I've been broke in every sense of the word. And I, I keep chasing my next high score Issues galore, I'm a walking, talking magazine We all know that nobody reads What's the use in words when they don't even understand me? Welcome to The Adventures We Have From Inside the House A podcast about entertainment, how and why we consume it, and how it shapes our lives and more importantly, a podcast that celebrates the things you like, even if nobody else does. My name is Tim Riel, and I am Nerd Incorrect, the boy who loves entertainment of every kind and always seems to fall in love with the properties and art that don't always follow the crowd. The amount of people who believe they are of above average intelligence ranges from 65% of people to 78%, depending on the study, which, if you remember any of your math, is pretty nearly impossible. I won't get into why it's not fully impossible, except to say it has to do with the kinds of averages you're talking about, you know, the median or mean or mode, but my point is the large majority of people will believe they are one of the smartest people in the room. You've met these people, I'm sure, in your day-to-day. People who are clearly not intelligent, but seeming to believe they're so smart. And you'll roll your eyes at them, despite the irony of the judgment you've just made, Because it is ironic that you feel able to look at someone and believe they are less intelligent than you because you are one of the smartest in the room. The whole thing fascinates me, mostly because I believe I'm one of the smartest in the room. Watching someone being confident and undeterred despite being radically and woefully wrong or looking down on everyone as simple people always shakes me because I'm not special. And I believe we're all basically the same. And I feel the same as this person. And oh my God, what if I'm dumb? Or even better or worse, what if nobody's dumb? Or everybody's dumb? Whatever the case may be, I am fascinated by the idea of a room full of people believing they are all the smartest in the room. Which should be obvious to everyone who knows what kinds of movies and TV shows to which I gravitate. My favorite TV shows, my favorite movies, they all have the same thing in common. Every character is written as a smart person. Every character believes they are a smart person, and sometimes they disagree. And they battle it out in a war of logic and rhetoric, subtle highbrow barbs, and the goal of changing their opponent's mind through sheer force of debate. I like these pieces of media because I like to think that I am able to hold my own in that room. That situation. So I watch, with the smug, most likely incorrect assumption that I am just as intelligent. Because I am one of the 65 to 78%. If you've not experienced an Aaron Sorkin project, you may be getting the wrong picture of what an Aaron Sorkin script is. The idea is always that the people in the script are intelligent and well-spoken. But these aren't fact-filled educational romps through information. Every scene and every story is based on emotional response and current desire. It's just that the characters in the scene aren't dumb. They have different motivations and different goals. Allowing everyone to be smart, and more importantly, believe they're smart, leads to moments of courage, bravery, passion. Because they're sure of themselves and can back it up. 
It also leads to the way more interesting idea that there isn't always a winner. Not the way the dumb husband comes out on top when he tricks his wife into his ill-fated but hilarious scheme on whatever multicam sitcom you're currently watching. There isn't always a resolution, not always a victor, and sometimes the winner is wrong, which leads to way more interesting ideas and emotions. Growing up, the TV landscape was filled with shows that featured one-dimensional characters like Dumb Dad that were written as slow and dim-witted, but the overarching sentiment was that audiences were dumb and slow-witted. Every character had to easily be put into a personality box because the audience couldn't possibly understand that the mean person might also be confused, or in love, or funny. Instead, they'd fill the scene with five characters. The mean one, the two that are in love, the funny one, and the confused one. You, the viewer, couldn't possibly understand what is going on if the funny one was smart, or the smart one was confused. So in writing a script for TV or movies, you need to keep in mind that the audience is stupid and you need to hold their hand. So for many, many years, two characters would get into an argument about how they felt like the other didn't understand them or weren't there for them or wouldn't acknowledge what they had done and the other would storm off angrily. Then the angry person would sit down with another character, usually a precocious kid or mature-spirited teen, and that kid would say, out loud, to a grown-ass adult, that maybe they should try to understand the other person. Be there for the other person. Acknowledge all that the other person had done. And this would end with the adult human being realizing for the first time that they should have considered the other person's position, which would then lead to the growth of the character. And that person would then say all of that again to the original person who, by the way, will say they had only been waiting for that apology and never having that issue again. You know, like in real life. All of this will, of course, be mixed in with asking the kid, <clears throat> how did you get so wise? And no real resolution to the problem. Just a resolution as to how they could probably communicate more in the future. It's frustrating to watch. You know that the writer's room decided that this episode was going to be about how to mend fences and that love conquers all. But they need to make sure that we, the audience, also get that. We need to understand that we should mend fences and that love conquers all. So the characters have to spell it out for us, lest we miss the message and the point. This hasn't gone away, of course. There's still an overwhelming amount of television written today that takes the audience is dumb direction on things. The most recent time I got angry was this exact same situation in the show Bel Air. If you aren't aware of Bel Air, it's a dramatic reimagining of The Fresh Prince of Bel Air, which was a sitcom from the 90s, which means it originally was very much a spell-it-out-for-them type of show. But sitcoms get a pass, especially multicam, because that's just the formula. But even Fresh Prince played with nuance, subtlety, and truth of motivation. Bel Air does too, but just barely. And because it's a modern-day drama... It has to contend with shows that came before it that didn't treat the audiences dumb. It's part of a new generation of television that should know better. 
In the particular episode I was watching, Will's mom Vi holds bitterness and a grudge against Aunt Viv because Vi was a single mother who helped Viv start her art career, which was later abandoned, and stayed in Philadelphia to care for their dying mother while her sister became unimaginably rich and abandoned Vi and her mother. Aunt Viv holds a grudge because Vi is always upset about that. This did make me very excited. This is real life. An opportunity for the writers to explore what it's like to love and feel beholden to a person who is narcissistic and selfish. Someone who will feel attacked when their own actions are presented to them. How a person can so obviously be wrong and still justify their actions and then believe they're right and that the other person is overreacting and wrong for even challenging them. They get upset because this person doesn't understand why it has to be this way. We've all met people like that. We have people like that in our lives. And the writers were teed up for an opportunity to really explore this aspect of Aunt Viv's personality. But they don't. Because they need you to know that Aunt Viv is one of the heroes of the show. And because of that, she has to come out on the right side of things. So instead, Aunt Viv isn't selfishly gaslighting Vi. Isn't convinced, as she had been at the beginning of the episode, that somehow Vi enjoyed being the strong one that carries everyone without help. Who doesn't need help? Who doesn't even want help? No. Instead, we're told she just didn't know she had abandoned her sister to do everything by herself. We find out when her son spells it out for her and she, I kid you not, starts listing the ways she failed Vi as if it's news to her. Vi took care of Mama alone. She took care of Will alone. She took care of me alone. And I never saw that. She really, really says that. And then she apologizes to Vi in a scene that could have been great, but to spare you the suspense, it wasn't. The pair apologize to each other, and the beef is quashed. After, of course, Aunt Viv says all of that again to Vi. But like I said, it could have been great, even after the after-school special scene that preceded it. A scene that, of course, ends with Aunt Viv, an adult person with life experiences and the intelligence and self-awareness to understand relationship dynamics, learning this brand new idea that other people have feelings from her son, and saying, as anticipated, how did you get so wise? The next scene could have been better. And more real, because it starts with Will talking to Vi about how Vi is going to need to be the bigger person, because Viv won't be. But then Viv is. Because, of course, she's the hero. And she hasn't been narcissistic and selfish. She just didn't know. And Vi is okay with that. Gone is the defensiveness, the need to be right, the reasoning and arguments from before. Neither of them stand their ground on what the actual issue was. Not only have you been told exactly what is happening in this moment, but the moment itself is so simple and clear-cut, everything is fixed because they now both understand each other. These 40 to 50-year-old women have finally realized that maybe they should take the other person's feelings into account. Like in real life! Watching this episode brought me straight back to my childhood when every show did this. Party of Five, Picket Fences, X-Files, Chicago Hope, ER, Quantum Leap, The Practice. All of which I was a fan of, but all of which made sure that their point, the episode's message, was clear. Clear enough that a child would pick up on it. 
Watching these shows brings back the nostalgia of this style of writing, but it also highlights how simplistic the characterizations were. The good people were always good. The bad people, always bad. The dumb one was dumb, the awkward one was awkward, and every show was set up like the emotion characters in Pixar's Inside. But there have always been writers and producers that didn't think audiences were dumb. Writers who explored characters as if they were real people, with depth, nuance, contradiction, and several motivations. My favorite part of trying to find shows like that from this era is that all of them, just before release, were referred to as risky. The network was taking a chance. It was unlike anything on TV. It was a new kind of insert genre here. My first time hearing about a show that broke the mold was NYPD Blue from Stephen Bochco and David Milch, the latter of whom handled most of the writing. I wasn't allowed to watch NYPD Blue, not when it came out, because it had nudity and I was 12. But it was such a headline grabber that I was aware of it, and I knew that it was good. Entertainment Tonight would cover it a lot, talking about how the cast wasn't classically attractive, and that the characters were complex, that the show was going to win awards, and that it was challenging for viewers to watch. So the very first Tuesday night that I was asked to babysit my brother when my parents were away, I watched NYPD Blue. I don't want you to think that I was looking forward to great television and that I was searching for depth of character and complex emotional plot lines. I was 12. I was there for the boobs. But there weren't any boobs, not in this episode. What there was, was a kind of dialogue and story that I hadn't seen before. Everyone was smart. They all knew their job, and they did it well when they wanted to. If they didn't do it well, it was a choice, whether through circumstance, frustration, stress, or fatigue. People didn't fail on purpose, and they didn't act against their own interest or against their established motivations just to move the plot along or make a point. Problems weren't solved. They evolved. Relationships didn't form and end from a single moment. They grew or fell apart over time. The reason NYPD Blue was a new kind of cop show wasn't because they showed boobs or Dennis Fran's butt. It was because David Milch didn't think the viewer was dumb. Scenes played out. Conflict was explored with the knowledge that you understood why a person would do or say something. If someone lashed out irrationally in frustration and self-defense, we didn't have a scene explaining to the other person that this person didn't mean it and that they were just frustrated and defensive out of self-defense. And we didn't have the original person be okay with being lashed out at because they understand the other person is going through a tough time. We're not dumb. These scenes played out like a real conflict. Someone feels attacked, so they attack back, and they get upset and leave. The other person also gets upset. And at no point does a smart 12-year-old explain the dynamics of misinterpretation and the weight of personal stress. If the conflict is resolved, it's because the two people involved have time to reflect and reassess. And even then, if there is an apology, it's a small step in the right direction. It doesn't fix anything. It's something to build on. David Milch is really good at this. If you're interested, he's the guy that created Deadwood. But you should check out two of his less talked about series, John from Cincinnati and Luck. Luck stars Dennis Farina and Dustin Hoffman, by the way. So, yeah. I'm sure there were many shows in the interim, 
But my next memory of watching a show that made me feel different was when I was 18. Looking back at 1999, there was a feeling that television was maybe right. That maybe people were too dumb to get things unless it was explained to them like they were five. The hits at that time were Sex in the City, Charmed, That 70s Show, Dawson's Creek, King of Queens. All of them were fine shows. They catered to the common person and held their hands through plot points, making sure to explain what was happening and why. And the characters all fit their mold. They each were the thing they were supposed to be. To the point that people would explain their simple personality trait they wished to show to the world by naming those characters. Every woman was either a Carrie, a Samantha, or a Miranda. Guys my age were Kelsos or Eric Foremans. Girls either dated Dawson's or Pacey's. Characters were simple. Their problems were simplistic, and they were resolved. They stayed resolved and disappeared. This was the great television leading into the fall season of 1999. But there were some shows that were still shaking things up. First of all, NYPD Blue was still on the air despite it being complicated. South Park and Oz had proven that smart writing wasn't a turnoff. Felicity had proven that the beautiful teens falling in love idea was way more complex than just falling in love. Everything was messy and that life was hard. So despite 1998 celebrating the cookie-cutter sensibilities of network television, some networks were looking at the outliers, the ones that were speaking to a whole new audience, the sleeper hits that weren't supposed to work, the stuff you could only see on HBO. And so, in 1999, I was on the couch on a Wednesday night with my parents getting ready to watch a TV show that would change how I saw entertainment. It took a lot for me to convince my mom to watch this show instead of watching the third episode of Get Real, a Fox show about the dysfunctional Green family as the parents face a midlife crisis and the kids go through their teenage years. It was exactly like every other drama about family, which is why you, and my mom by the way, have forgotten it ever existed. The three teens were played by Jesse Eisenberg, Eric Christian Olsen, and Anne Hathaway, which is a kick, but still. The show was nothing special. Despite it being basically the same show as every other family drama, it still took a lot for me to convince my mom to instead watch a show about politicians and their staff at the White House. I can't really blame her. The press leading up to it wasn't exactly glowing. West Wing was risky. It defied genre classification. It was a show where everybody talked and nothing happened. The headlines all asked, how exciting can talking about the budget and macroeconomics be? How sexy is fiscal policy and domestic trade? But in the end, we did watch it. Mostly because Rob Lowe was in it, but still, we watched it. And it changed TV for me. I think it changed TV for everyone. People were watching West Wing. People started enjoying watching smart people be smart. People started wanting President Bartlett to be their president. Audiences started talking about how good it was. And suddenly, the TV show about smart things became the show everyone was watching. Moral dilemmas on the show were talked about on the news and in households. Dialogues about decisions made by characters on the show were featured in newspapers. These characters, none of which were perfect, none of which were simple, they were watched weekly with rapt attention because people could see themselves, really see themselves in the struggles, in the successes, in the failures, in the mistakes. 
Aaron Sorkin, simply by treating his characters and his audience as intelligent people, had done what nobody on network TV had done since NYPD Blue. He let the audience figure it out on their own. He didn't hold anyone's hand. He didn't spell anything out. He just let the characters be real and knew that you were also real and smart enough to understand why someone would do something or say something. And then they won the Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Drama Series and for Directing. And of course, writing, where Aaron Sorkin was actually nominated twice. They also won a couple for acting. I may be reading too much into it, but I think the success of a TV show that treats its characters as smart and complex, winning the hearts of critics and audiences, led to a shift in writing and definitely in networks looking specifically for writers who could deliver at this level. For writers that wrote complex, intelligent people with emotions. The very next year, Gilmore Girls from Amy Sherman Palladino premiered. Curb Your Enthusiasm from Larry David. Malcolm in the Middle from Linwood and Gluberman. 2001 saw Scrubs, Six Feet Under, Alias. 2002 had The Wire and The Shield. 2003, Arrested Development, Nip Tuck, Dead Like Me. 2004, Lost, House, Shameless, Deadwood, Veronica Mars, Battlestar Galactica. Every year following West Wing, the standout shows were always about smart people. And they treated you like you were also smart. When I look at the culture shift since 1999 to today, when I hear the public discourse, I hear a lot of smart people arguing. I hear a lot of dumb people too, except those people don't think they're dumb. And that's complicated. Maybe I just didn't notice things when I was younger. Or maybe I'm cherry-picking my examples. But I think the shows and movies people want to watch are the ones that don't treat them like they're dumb. I think the shows that stand out, that shape our world, that inform our public consciousness, the ones that people remember and respect, I think they're about smart people, complicated people. They're about decisions and circumstances that can't be fixed in 40 minutes by a smart 13-year-old. These shows stand out because when you watch them, you feel smart. Because you get it. You know what the emotions are, that life, that people are complicated. You watch and you feel smart because the show treats you like you're smart. It's what I look for in a show. I want the characters and moments to be complex and reasonable and real. The situation, the context, the environment can be as outlandish as you want, so long as the characters and their reactions are rooted in very real emotional motivations of that character. The television landscape has changed, and you can see that network television still doesn't really get it. Turn on the TV, and you'll see that the biggest hits are Superman and Lois, Young Sheldon, 911, CSI Vegas, NCIS Hawaii, and Magnum PI. All of which are eclipsed by the reality lineup. Keeping up with the Kardashians, America's Got Talent, The Bachelorette, The Masked Singer. All of which reek of an industry that wants to play it safe, program for the lowest common denominator, and believes that their audience is too dumb to get anything more complicated than a cop that tells you how the suspect was left-handed, or the mom who finally understands that maybe her sister did want help. Meanwhile, streaming platforms and cable channels are churning out shows that ask you to be smart. They're challenging and complicated, and they trust you to be smart enough to parse the narrative. Yellow Jackets, a multi-genre mind-bender of a show that scares you as much as it frustrates you. Succession, an intense family drama about business and what it takes to be on top. 
Mayor of Easttown, a murder mystery that's more about the people than it is the mystery. So many more that elevate the idea that neither you nor the characters are dumb. Hacks, Kevin can fuck himself. Atlanta, Winning Time, Minx, all of them wonderful and beautiful and challenging and, well, smart. All of them make me feel good about watching them. I'm never ashamed to say I watched any of them. They're not a guilty pleasure. I never have to qualify them the way I do when I watch The Rookie or Reacher or How I Met Your Father. I feel good about myself when the show I'm watching treats me like an adult. Some producers cater to the lowest common denominator. Some shows are made for people who won't get it or need help understanding. Some people need a kid to tell the adult how personal emotions work. And that's fine. I'll watch anything. I'll watch it and I'll roll my eyes or get frustrated at how lazy it is or how unrealistic. But I get really excited when a show understands that I'm not dumb. And on days where I need that, where I need to be treated like I'm not an idiot, you'll find me on the couch, absorbed in the words of Aaron Sorkin, Amy Sherman Palladino, Noah Bombeck, Paul Thomas Anderson. And I'll be happy. I'll be cozy, warm, smiling, and drunk from the joy of watching smart people argue. Our theme music is provided by Double Experience. You can find the track Bill Murray everywhere you get music. And my ability to take time out of my week to make this podcast is supplied by my supporters at patreon.com slash nerdincorrect. If you support us on Patreon, thank you. And because you do, you're listening to this episode a week before anybody else. And if you want to be part of that club, head on over to patreon.com slash nerdincorrect, where you get early access to all our podcasts, an exclusive podcast, and so much more. You can also join our Nerd Incorrect Discord server, The Incorrection, where we can discuss in more depth everything I talked about today. If you want your question and or comment about today's podcast featured in next week's episode of discussing the adventures we have from inside the house, you can drop it into our podcast-specific Discord channel or comment on the Patreon post of this episode. All of the comments on the Patreon will be featured, and if possible, as many of the Discord comments as well. I'm Tim Riel. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week as we discuss more of the adventures we have from inside the house. I'm uncool, I'm the uncool that everyone's built, and that's alright with me, cause I'm a walking, talking magazine, we all know that nobody reads, but what's the use of words when nobody understands me, what's the point of trying to be someone that I can't be?